Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of What's the Crack? Today's episode will be on food addiction, or is it food addiction? Is it eating addiction? Food use disorder? Compulsive eating disorder? Does it even exist? This is what we will be unpacking in this episode and more. Today I'm joined with Amanda Raffle. Amanda, could you introduce and say a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I am a second year PhD student here at the University of Waterloo in the School of Public Health and Health Systems. I like to describe my work as sort of an intersection between obesity and eating disorders, and that's sort of where my interests lie. Great. Thank you. So, okay, so today we're talking about food addiction and whether it is a legit, I guess, addiction classification. For context, there is a debate in the field about whether food addiction is an addiction or whether it is an addiction, but we aren't using the correct terminology and et cetera, et cetera, which we will unpack later. So food addiction is the idea that food brings the same addictive qualities as some substances do. They make the same changes in the brain, the same dopamine rush and learned behaviors of reward and punishment, and bring the same ideas of tolerance and withdrawal. However, food addiction also includes a behavioral element. So where the brain experiences the same level of reward and punishment and reinforcement, but without a substance, for example, gambling. Currently, food addiction hasn't been classified or recognized in the DSM-5, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is a manual that psychiatrists use to aid diagnosis in all medical conditions. It outlines specific criteria that a person has to present to be diagnosed. There have been a number of additions and changes in additions relate to the ever-changing mental uh, disorders and classifications. For example, addictions are now called substance use disorders, and in the most recent edition, binge eating disorder has now been introduced as a standalone disorder. And the list goes on. But if you'd like more information of what actually is addiction or substance use disorders actually are, then check out a previous episode of this podcast, literally called What is Addiction? So what me and Amanda will be doing is exploring the idea of food addiction, the arguments for and against, and whether it should be classified and whether that is even helpful. So Amanda, would you like to start by maybe talking a bit about what you think food addiction is? Sure. So I think that you touched on it really well, sort of in your little introduction brief, about food addiction being a pretty contentious issue right now. And there's a lot of controversy about whether um, it it is a thing or if it's not an actual uh, addiction in and of itself. But uh, from what I've gathered in the literature, despite the fact that we have no actual definition of what food addiction is, it's uh, a series or a combination of both behavioral and substance related reactions that are elicited when individuals eat food that, like you said, can make it seem like it's an actual substance addiction or substance use disorder. 
Okay, great, thank you. And I um I read again that some of the debate in the literature were arguing whether again this is focusing on terminology, but whether it should be called eating addiction or food addiction, because then the eating incorporates the behavioural aspect. But then I think another argument that I read was if we're calling it eating addiction, then alcohol addiction should be drinking addiction and tobacco addiction should be smoking addiction. Do you what do you think about the terminology, I guess, with between the both? And yeah. Yeah. So I think that a lot of that has to do with the blurring of what exactly is a substance with the food addiction. So when it's an alcohol addiction or a tobacco addiction, I think that the actual substance itself is pretty clear. But with the food addiction, um, it's a question of whether or not it's all foods or just certain types of foods. And I think that's where a lot of the controversy in the area tends to stem from. Um, is it just that certain foods or qualities within the foods, like a specific sweetener or an additive is what's causing these addiction, addictive reactions? Or is it just all food in and of itself yeah yeah no yeah yeah I think yeah that's again where the confusion or not even confusion but how complicated it is because again what how you were saying with alcohol is just one thing but there's so many foods and there's so many compounds to that food there's sugar there's fats and then those are the well those are the two forms that have basically got so much anger towards it recently and yeah where who would you target first and I think I think, again, one of the arguments was saying, oh, we should call it processed food addiction. But then that's a massive group as well. Yeah. So, yeah, basically, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely been, I know that um, one author in particular refers to it as like refined food addictions. Um, But the, the problem with the types of foods that are being specified is that every single type of measure that we have for food addiction now, so the one that's most often used in research or even in clinical settings, the Yale Food Addiction Scale, actually clarifies types of foods um, that would be characterized with the food addiction. So right off the bat, the measures that we're using in and of themselves have some sort of built-in bias. We know what types of foods we will classify as an addictive type of substance. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking as well because... Is this focused, again, on a compulsive eating? Because I think, again, with what you were saying, with even your uh, even your specialities between obesity and eating disorders, I think I've read, again, that it's slightly different because in this compulsion eating, which, uh, you know, more forms towards binge eating, but then there's obesity, which could just be developed by overconsumption over time, which wouldn't necessarily be seen as an addiction because it doesn't tick the boxes that addiction needs. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think we, when we tend to think of obesity, we we overblow or we think that that word and definition in and of itself covers more than it does because what we tend to refer to as obesity is just a certain amount of excess body fat, right? And so when we start to tie um, behavioral uh, or characteristic or even uh, specific like psychological qualities or characteristics to just body fat, we're opening up a whole different can of worms because we're making these assumptions about individuals because of their weight. Yeah, absolutely. And then yeah, so even should we even be classifying obesity within food addiction, or is it is it completely separate? Yeah, and, yeah. and that's I think another interesting part of the literature is that there is quite a bit of evidence that says that what we measure as food addiction, I, I say food addiction with air quotes, um, what we measure as food addiction though is uh, something that's a lot more prevalent among individuals with overweight uh, who, are, who are affected by obesity than it is in individuals who have like a lower weight status. So it's something that we see is associated with it, but we can't necessarily say that they're the same thing. Right. 
Yeah, that yeah. would make sense. We're talking about you know sugar and high fat content, which is the ones that are really being focused on. But then thinking a bit maybe outside the box, would could other food substances bring the same addictive qualities? But I guess in a behavioural aspect, aspect such as orthorexia, mm-hmm. as in focusing on the healthy foods, and I guess potentially the healthy foods won't bring that dopamine rush and that um, the actual physical substance that sugar would, but the reward of eating healthy foods. Mm -hmm. Is that the confusion with, I guess, definitions as well between behavioral and substance? Yeah, yeah. So there's one element to the substance argument um, or to the substance side of the argument and that the the actual substances within the foods themselves have addictive qualities Mm -hmm. or elicit some sort of like neurological reaction. So there's obviously the obvious ones like you mentioned, so sugar, fat, salt, and those types of things, uh, which biologically and because of evolutionary processes that have gone on through years, obviously our brain will reward us for those types of things. They're present in the food system in a different way than they were seven, eight hundred years ago when our biology was being uh, shaped and determined by genetic factors. Um, but they do have that sort of reaction. Mm-hmm. And then the other half is that behavioral. So the reason why I don't think that that's uh, a present factor with healthier foods So, for example, someone who, um, let's say, really, really enjoys salads uh, might not get that same reaction is because a lot of the argument and criticism around food addiction is that it doesn't incorporate the element of restriction, which is what makes those foods like sugar, fat and salt so appealing to the brain. Right. Could you explain a bit more what the restriction means in that in that area? (laughs) Sure. So certain foods we know, like um, sugary foods, salty foods, starchy foods within our general society are regarded as the types of foods that are that taste good, but are actually bad for you. Um, And so those types of foods generally, because of the messaging surrounding them being bad for you um, or the emphasis on not consuming them in an excess quality or quantity uh, means that we as people will try to restrict those foods more often than not. But there is a lot of evidence that restriction of certain foods actually elicits a greater craving and wanting of those foods. And so the question is, when it comes to behavioral elements of food addiction, um, is is it just the fact that we know that we shouldn't (laughs) technically be having those foods that elicits that wanting and craving for them and as a result elicits a stronger reward when we actually get them? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I'm assuming then society as a whole has an as a has a role in this by I guess framing it as naughty air quote foods like oh is a cake oh I'm so bad for having this cake but yeah. then now it's now on a pedestal. Yes. Because now it's a treat and now I'm not allowed to have it that much and then you open a can of worms with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And I think that that's why a lot of the people uh, that criticize food addiction in and of itself and criticize the measures like mm-hmm. that, that Yale food addiction scale that I brought up, say that that element of restriction is never brought into the equation. Mm-hmm. Because when we talk about other sorts of substances, um, that element of restriction takes on a whole different characterization because food is something that we all have to have. Food is something that if you have a healthy relationship with food, you can consume all types of foods. It's not so black and white. Yeah. I I like hesitate to ever moralize food as like a good food or a bad food, but there are definitely foods that do different things for our bodies. There are foods that obviously provide more nutrients. There are foods that fill social and cultural gaps 
could you imagine a, like a birthday without cake? No, because that's something that's social and that's a role that that food plays, even though that might not be providing us with, you know, all of the protein and the potassium and the calcium that we necessarily yeah. need, right? So all foods play a role in some capacity or some extent, which makes it a lot more different than any other type of substance that we've looked at before. Yeah. I've got the DSM-5, the actual, um, the tick list of what you need to, uh, I guess, classify as an addiction. And reading through them, I could see how it would take all those boxes. For example, like a substance is often taken in larger amounts over a longer period than it was intended, could do that. Um, there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful effort to cut down or control use of substance. Um, continued use of the substance despite having persistent or reoccurring social or interpersonal problems. I mean, that's, you know, these are you can see how these would, for example, uh, fit more into uh, tobacco or um, cocaine addiction. Um, tolerance, I guess, again, would, because you could eat the same amount and not get the same effect. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess getting used to sugar. I don't know. I don't know whether this is my bias yeah. from the media. Yeah. Because then, you know, when people, every January, people want to give up sugar and then everyone says that they feel great. Yeah. And then, you know, they had an initial headache which would, you know, tick the withdrawal. But then again, I don't know whether I've just read that from the media and it might not, oh, it might not be wrong. I might have just been a classic, you know, fake news person there. <laughs> I think I think that there's a couple of things in there that you're right, we're totally shaped by the media. And of course, the way the evidence is presented in the media, it completely paints a different picture. I think that actually some elements like tolerance or withdrawal aren't so strong in the food addiction literature. And a lot of the very strong evidence that comes from animal studies, again, can't really incorporate, like you said, those social elements surrounding food, like post-holiday, you know, sugar depletion (laughs) or whatever it is. Um, So I think that those types of things in the human eating literature aren't defined so strongly. And when it comes to actual, uh, you know, the, the paralleling of food addiction with eating disorders, that that also sometimes can can be a little bit misleading for some people because assuming that let's say binge eating disorder aligns with the food addiction I think takes away some of the the very strictly psychiatric elements of, of binge eating disorder itself but you're right like some of the, the the check boxes I think can be ticked very cleanly whereas others it's not so strong uh, either because the definition doesn't line up so well because like you said food is very different than substances or other substances that we're talking about uh, but also because we don't have super strong evidence to present some sort of um, like parallel for that yeah yeah no yeah that makes sense um I have a question actually uh, do you think calling it an addiction is a good thing my bias says no um so there is one criticism that has some evidence suggesting that when you call um, food addiction an addiction it creates this sort of external attribution and what that means is that people can sort of displace the blame or the shame that they have on themselves for having a craving or wanting a certain type of food on something outside of themselves So I can't stop eating cake because it's my food addiction. Um, And in one way, some people might argue that that takes some of the stigma or the shame out of that feeling. But there's some limited evidence that suggests that what it actually does is that when you claim food addiction is something real and something that exists, 
more people will self-diagnose um, or self-assess themselves as being addicts to food. And when people perceive themselves as being addicted to food, something that they can't control, it doesn't really do much to help with their health, uh, their relationship with food. Um, and some limited evidence shows that it actually might lead them to engage in more unhealthy eating behaviors. So they're more likely to eat those sugary, fatty, salty foods because in their mind, it's something out of their control. It takes the agency out of food, I think. Okay. That's interesting because I was... I was battling in my head between whether I think it's a good thing because I was surprised at its creation because especially with substance addiction, it brings so much stigma to drug users. I'm comparing this with um, the word addiction with substance use like cocaine, heroin. Um, the, addic- the addiction label brings so much stigma that I'm surprised that they're wanting to bring this food addiction, something such heavy with stigma or that's, you know, with cocaine and heroin has so much stigma, um, to the limelight when, especially with the DSM-5 that we've just said, has removed the word addiction and used it with substance use disorder. So they're actually getting rid of the word addiction because it's not helpful. And the word addict in some circles is offensive and not helpful. So it that, for me, didn't really make sense that we were pushing for a new word that has already been, you know, in other circles shown not to be helpful. But then on the other flip side that I was thinking was if food addiction and the word addiction helps people understand addiction more, would that therefore help the substance use uh, community? And I, I don't know, guess give more empathy to those users of people who use heroin, use uh, cocaine, use um, ecstasy, any other substance use that have been stigmatized as a drug user or echo addict. If the world accepts food addiction for what it is and has more empathy for those people, will it therefore transfer onto that community? I don't know. Those are my thoughts anyway, because I was just like, I don't know. (laughs) Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. No, and I think that that's a fair argument to bring up is that, yes, once you say that it's something that's, let's say, out of a person's like local, like locus of control, right? Mm -hmm. Something like addiction that, um, although the term is stigmatizing within our society, we associate that word with somebody not being able to control in and of themselves. Um, And like I said, I think that that potentially can be harmful because it Mm -hmm. takes the agency out of a person's relationship with food and it implies that they, they can't control, air quote, themselves around these certain types of substances, which in and of themselves are actually fairly healthy, right? Like anybody can have a cupcake and still have a healthy diet. That's that's totally normal. Um, But I think you do bring up a good point. And that's something that maybe gets glossed over sometimes in the criticisms is that it does take some of that blame off of individuals. Um, Maybe recognizing that there are broader societal factors that are impacting their food choices, like the food environment, um, the cost of food, media and advertising and those types of Mm -hmm. things that we've seen from, let's say, tobacco are actually incredibly influential in people's decision to start a substance, um, start using a substance, for example, or their inability to stop using that substance. So I think it can go both ways. And that that definitely is a helpful argument that I think Mm -hmm. gets glossed over a lot. Yeah. So thinking about labeling and shifting the blame from the individual, do you think the label of addiction removes corporate responsibility? The label of addiction in and of itself uh, for an individual, addiction implies something individual and it takes away all of those broader environmental and societal contributors to individuals, people's behaviors. Um, and, And I think that addiction, the word in and of itself, just pathologizes eating behavior which in and of itself is normal, right? Like we're supposed yeah. to eat. Um, so the the term food addiction, like you said, it's funny that they're actually using the word addiction when so much of the substance use world has moved away from that. Yeah. 
having worked in mostly prevention, community-based settings, I don't do a lot of clinical work. Um, but in my limited clinical experiences, I do know that people with eating disorders or that some people that struggle with their weight and with obesity and overweight um, will talk about food and their eating experiences as having addictive-like qualities. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is important when we're critiquing food addiction as a term, as a phenomenon, as, a, as I guess a research thing that we're looking at, is that we don't want to discount or disqualify individuals' experiences as not being valid. So for individuals who feel like um, a food sitting, uh, an eating session has an addictive quality that they can't stop, has um, components that are similar to what we would normally deem as an addiction. I don't want to like invalidate them as, you know, people with disorders or people with certain conditions because it, it's important to listen to those voices. I just think that broadly within a society, this whole concept of food addiction doesn't Holds up or requires a lot more clarification and research. Yeah. So yeah. could you talk a bit more about that? So do you mean that if we're introducing a broader term, it masks the individual voice? Is that, is that what you're saying? I think that in critiquing the broader term, sometimes we're ignoring the individual voice. Mm. And so I don't want to invalidate individual people's experiences with food as something addictive that let's say they can't stop eating or thinking about or they feel like they have a hard time separating themselves from. Uh, so I think that those experiences are valid and their descriptions of them are. I just think that at a broad societal level, it's really hard for us to grasp what exactly is a food addiction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And... Do you think that, I think this is touched on something that we've already just um, talked about, but do you think that an introduction of such term or a disorder or air quote addiction would increase? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
diagnosis or self-diagnosis, I guess, and whether that'd be helpful or not. I think that based on what um, some of the major critiques are and then some up-and-coming research states is that it definitely will increase self-diagnosis or at least some uh, self-identification with, oh, I can't control my eating and what foods I want to eat and why I can't eat them. And like I said, that can be positive because it takes some of the blame off an individual, but it's negative because it's not placing blame, air quote, um, within a broader societal context. And it also makes people feel like they can't have a healthy relationship with food because it's out of their control. Um, I think that there are reasons we can't have a healthy relationship with food that are kind of like what we alluded to earlier, talking about industry and media and advertising. Um, and I guess just our normal cultural you know, assumption that cake is a bad food and that type of thing. So yeah, but I, I do think that those types of healthy relationship with food can be achieved and putting an addiction label on it will prompt more people to either be diagnosed or self-diagnose themselves as impossible to achieve that or unworthy of achieving that when I don't think that that's true. Yeah. yeah. I guess it would, I guess the self-diagnosis or diagnosis would help if then the next stage would be to seek help if they wanted help. But I guess the self-diagnosis and like you said, potentially compla- complacency, is that the word I want? Complacency. And, you know, the, oh, I can't do this because I'm addicted doesn't help. But if that person then goes, okay, I now need to seek help for this and, you know, help to manage said air quote addiction, potentially that would be a potential helpful thing. But, yeah. you know. Yeah, but even with treatment, I think that we need a, a stronger or a more precise clarification of what the addiction is because mm. how do we treat it? Do we treat it as a substance addiction, meaning that those individuals can't eat those foods, you know, Mm. presumably for the rest of their lives? Do we treat it as something behavioral? So are we incorporating whether they're eating alone, whether they're eating with other people? Um, And I mean, that's that's, again, something incredibly complicated that we can pull from other um, treatment of other substance use disorders, but we can't necessarily copy. Okay, it might not be able to be answered, but so... Again, drawing my comparisons with substance use addiction, when we look at the root of the cause, we look at um, genetics, we look at environmental factors, we look at home life, past experiences, etc. Is that something that would be looked at, and again, air quote, food addiction? Um, and would they be the same things that we would look at? Would we look at genetics? And, you know, and if we are looking at genetics, are we then saying that it is a thing and we need to look for said you know, gene and other things. I don't know whether in clinical work you've been, you've come across anything that would predispose, I guess, a predisposition to echoed food addiction. Yeah. So I think that, again, the line is really blurred because we don't exactly know what food addiction is. So uh, there has been some work comparing, um, let's say, genetic predispositions to substance use addiction and genetic predisposition to eating disorders, which are separate but might potentially overlap because we do know that uh, there's a pretty high comorbidity rate between eating disorders and substance use disorders. So whether or not food addiction lies on that sort of same genetic um, pathway of predisposition is still being investigated. But I think that 
again, there needs to be more clarification about what's actually going on so that we can pin it down. Because if we're defining food addiction as something that might be an actual just overlap with the predispositions to substance use addictions, we might be saying that there's something there when there's really not just for food. It might just be for substance uh, like use in general um, or for eating disorders, but we're trying to throw it into a box that it doesn't belong in necessarily. It might just actually lie in an overlap between the two, but I think that more work needs to be done for that. Absolutely. And if it isn't, if it isn't a thing, then we're looking for nothing. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're making assumptions about something yeah. that isn't there, which I think is um, a pretty consistent criticism of food mm. addiction in general, um, that we're, we're trying to find something as, uh, as we rush for a solution to this, you know, air quote obesity epidemic, uh, mm. that, that we're just so desperate to, to grasp for straws at anything. And, and I don't think that that's necessarily an intention of people, that they're just trying to find an explanation for what's going on. I think that uh, obviously there are phenomena happening at both, you know, the level of food as a substance and food as a behavior. I just think that there needs to be a lot more clarification and investigation into that. Yeah. Okay, so I think I've co- we've covered quite a lot today. Um, I think the summary is is that it's a new emerging field. We still don't know whether it is an addiction or not, or whether it should be called an addiction or not, whether it's helpful for society, for individual, whether the, the blame shifts from the individual to the society, whether that's good, whether that's bad, good foods, bad foods. It's all very confusing. It's a massive, broad topic, and this podcast doesn't even scratch the surface so food addiction is it a thing we don't know hope you enjoyed listening goodbye hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.